Uh, if you don't, there probably is one in front of you is there. But grab your Bible and go to Luke chapter 14. This is where we've been. And this is a, a crazy kind of a message by Jesus. I say that because, I mean, it is, um, it's a shocker of a message. It's actually considered one of the hard sayings of Jesus as he preaches this message. And there are many people that get confused by this. Actually, at the end of Christ's ministry, I mean, with massive crowds, he would often preach very difficult style of messages, to, but very clear gospel messages. And crowds would walk away from him. That's too hard for me, they would kind of say, and they would walk away. And so, and the truth is, is Jesus is looking for authentic followers of him. So notice this passage, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Here's what he says. He says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, or actually verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And he concludes his message. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I hope that this, this series has been a challenge to you. I mean, it's a challenge to me, even just delivering it to you. But the series title was simply this, The True Cost of Real Discipleship. What does it really mean to be a real follower of Jesus? There's a lot of people who claim Christ. And actually, there are cults out there, clear cults, that, that are not biblical at all. And that, yet they claim to be Christian. And one sense is, what is a real Christian? Well, a real Christian is a person who is a real follower of Jesus. Jesus even made that very clear in John 10. He said this, that my sheep, he said, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then he says he gives them eternal life. True sheep follow the shepherd. Actually, it'd be really odd for you to say this. Hey, Jeremy, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus. We would then say to you, I would say to you, in truth, well, then you're not a Christian because real Christians actually follow Christ. Jesus said that my sheep, they do hear my voice. They do follow me. <laughs> but there's a lot of people who claim Christ who are not in Christ. So we begin to look at this even idea of a real disciple. Really, the reality is, is this is a, a gospel call. He's calling people to come to him in verse 26. If you're going to come to me, we looked at what that even meant in other passages, showing clearly a gospel call and then forsaking all relationships for the one true God. Remember, he's not saying go around and hate everybody. But he's saying this, in that, in that realm, it's a Hebraism, it's a way of comparison. You should so love me supremely that anything else seems like hatred in comparison. 
So in other words, we came to that first conclusion of the first message is that a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. And anything short of supreme love for Christ is idolatry. That's strong, isn't it? And yet how often are we idolatrous people and, and yet we need Christ. He's calling us to come to Him to, and His message from the very beginning was to repent and believe the gospel to turn from your sins to the Messiah and trust in Christ. So here's Jesus in this message with massive crowds and He's calling people to come to Him and He's kind of screaming to them in a sense like, love me supremely and if you're unwilling to do this, I'm so sorry, you cannot be my disciple. And then he even talks about it even more clear in verse 27, speaking of bearing the cross and coming after him. And again, anyone who would truly come to Christ would naturally come after Christ. That would be natural and normal. Again, for a person to come to Christ and then like kind of say, well, never mind, forget it. Well, no, they never really got it in the first place. Because if they really came to him, they would come after him and they would follow him. That's exactly what the scripture even teaches in verse 27. But the idea is that we surrender fully to him. We don't hold back. And yet the idea of dying to self and letting Christ live in and through you begins at conversion. And a person who says, no, I will not die to self and I'll cling to my life, what does he say? Then you lose your life. You don't gain eternal life. But it's a person who says, I don't, it's not about my life. And I, I, I let it go in that sense that I turn to Christ alone and I embrace him as my way of salvation and, and as my life. That person will gain eternal life. This is, this is far deeper than just praying some kind of prayer, isn't it? You begin to look even further and then we, we have that idea of full surrender. And then we have the third thing that we looked at last night is consider the cost or count the cost carefully. Jesus says, think. Weigh it out. It gives the illustration of, about emotional decisions and just kind of in a whim, building something and it doesn't last in the sense that, you know, you, you kind of do it on a whim and you can't quite finish it. It was just emotion. And then the other side is it a person who's really going to be a wise decision is a person who's humble and thoughtful and serious. It's a person who begins to realize that they could never rescue themselves. They must humble themselves before the King of kings and Lord of lords. They must think about the, re- the truth of the gospel. And because of that thoughtfulness, that seriousness, they repent and they trust in Christ. It's so serious, you could say this. It's not just life or death. That's serious, isn't it? But it's eternal life and eternal death. When you sin against an eternal God, there is an eternal punishment. That's why you need his eternal sacrifice. It's a clear gospel. And as Jesus is calling the, the lost to himself, he's, he's drawing the believers. It's like all or nothing. You renounce all that you have. And if you're unwilling to do this, you cannot be my disciple. This is, this is the reality. And yet the person who actually does do that, they say they've forsaken all for Christ. They, they, they long to love him supremely and surrender to him fully. And they, they consider the cost carefully. They're thinking about their eternal destiny and life and, and, and living for him in a very serious way. That person is the person who makes an impact constantly. And that's tonight's message. You could say this number one tonight or number four, depending on which night you've been here, you know. What's number four? What's the main point tonight? Here's what it is. A genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who makes an impact constantly.
Actually, Jesus says, salt is good, and you're like salt, and that's good. So tonight, I want to encourage you and challenge you, and I'm telling you, tonight's message can be such a blessing, and so I'm praying that God will stir our hearts. Let's, give, let's pray and ask God's help. Fathers, we would come before you now. We, we need you. You don't need us, but we desperately need you. And God, in your kindness and goodness, you have shown us the way through uh, your word, through the Messiah. Lord, there's no other way. That's why Messiah came. We could not rescue ourselves. So I pray anyone here tonight who's without Christ, or would you give them a tender heart? They would humble themselves before the great King of kings and Lord of lords. They would realize what you have done for them, their de- the death, burial, and even resurrection. Lord, paying the, the price for their sin and, and making it possible for them to be rescued if they would repent and believe the gospel. So I pray, Father, for genuine faith and genuine repentance tonight. And then I pray, God, for so many in this room who are believers, who have actually, who have repented, who have trusted you. Lord, would you stir them to greater love and good works? Would you empower me now? Bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. As we look at this passage, I, I see verse 34, and right away it says, salt is good. Jesus is, is, is commending true believers who live this way. You're like salt, and that's good. Now, what's amazing about this is when you first, at first glance at this passage, you might think that this is separated a little bit, okay? And I, I'm getting ready to say something that's going to sound heretical, okay? And, but don't kick me out yet, okay, until I tell you what I mean by this, okay? But here's what it is. Here's the heresy-sounding thing, okay? Ready? Uh, not everything in Scripture is inspired. Ah, hold on. Let me tell you what I mean by that, okay? Here's what I mean. Chapter numbers are not inspired in the Scriptures. Do you understand that? Okay, now we're going, okay. okay. You're like, oh, it's you, Jeremy. <laughs> you know? uh, or verse numbers are not in the originals. I mean, so the idea is we put them in there to help navigate, and yet a lot of times the, the chapters, are, you know, spots are pretty good. I mean, they do a good job. There are sometimes you're like, hey, they messed that one up. They should have been down a couple more verses or up, you know, one. So that happens. But in the, in the midst of this, when you look here, here, my fear is you look at this and you see a gap between verse 33 and verse 34. And if you're not careful and you don't read it in its context, you might think, oh, there's a big gap there. Here's a new message by Jesus. Actually, maybe some of your, your uh, scriptures might even have a little paragraph symbol, like it's a new paragraph and there's no paragraph symbols, you know, also in the, in the originals, you know. And then, and then here, I actually have a new start, like a new paragraph it, right here that I'm looking at. And, and it says 34 and it's kind of moved over a little bit. And in front of that or above that says salt without taste is worthless. And that's just kind of like a, like a heading, But actually, to somehow disjoint this does not do this message justice. Because if you really look at this within the original, that's why the the simplicity of this is is it finishes off verse 34, the idea of renouncing all that he has, or he cannot be my disciple. Therefore, comma, salt is good. That would be a much better rendering because it just so flows. This is part of his message. You live this way, there's a blessing this way, and I'm commending you because salt is good. You're like salt and salt is good. But wait, go beyond that. It says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? 
So what you begin to see is you have to kind of ask some more questions. Remember before, we're kind of hearing this, these, these messages by Jesus, and we kind of have to kind of go, okay, wait a second, what does it mean back then? And I would say back then, we have to have an understanding of salt. Because if I'm looking at you and saying, hey, everybody, you know, you're like, you're like salt. And you're like, thanks, Jeremy. What, what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> well, I would say this, number one tonight in this thought of salt here. True Christians who follow Christ flavor a sinful world with good taste. They're like salt. Now, as you look at this, we see right here in the right context right here of clearly it is an idea of flavoring. Because if the salt would lose its taste, its flavor, how shall its saltness be restored? It's talking about the nature of flavor. And that's true. So true Christians who follow Christ, they flavor a sinful world with good taste. Now, wait a second. Um, Could you imagine a world without any flavor? Now, some of you can because of COVID. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's like when you think about a world without any flavor. I mean, that's, that's like having mashed potatoes without anything on it or anything in it. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of just, uh. And when I think about flavor, I sometimes think about like fresh corn on the cob, you know, and it's like whether it's grilled or, or maybe it's, it's steamed of some sort and you put like a little bit of butter on that and you got some salt or some pepper and you like, you bite into it and when you bite into it, it's like, and it's like, it's like heaven in your mouth. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just so good. Or how many of you like chips and salsa? Anyone like chips and salsa? I love chips and salsa. Um, you know, when we travel, sometimes we'll end up going to a Mexican restaurant and, and you never know like what it's going to be like. And, and so, because different places, and sometimes you taste the chips and it's like, yeah, it needs a little bit of salt on it. And actually, my kids would be little at the time. They would always be like, hey, dad, can, can I meet me? And you know, they're like wanting to salt the chips, you know. Sometimes even with the salsa itself, it would be a little flavorless and you might even add a little bit of salt to the salsa to give it a little bit more flavor as well. We understand this when it comes to flavor, and yet here's what true believers are like. They're like salt, and they flavor a sinful world with good taste. Let me ask you a question. Is your marriage a better marriage because you're in it? Because Christ is in you and flavoring you, and now because of that, you have a marriage that has a flavor that's actually a good taste. Now, some of you are saying, well, Jeremy, I'm not married. And so I would simply say this, is your family a better family because you're in it because of what Christ is doing in you? I mean, is your workplace a better workplace because of Christ in you? Is your church a better church because of Christ in you? I mean, in a very practical way. I mean, true Christians who really follow Christ, they do flavor the sinful world with good taste. And when you go to a culture that seems to have no Christ in it at all, in other words, there's, there's no semblance of, of true biblical Christianity, of Messiah. Now what you have a, you have a culture that, that, oh, like the flavor, just awful. And yet with believers, we seek to make an impact constantly. We're like salt and we flavor a sinful world with good taste. When I consider this, I, I think back um, to uh, the 50s. Not that I was born then, but <clears throat> I act like it when I walk up steps sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but when I think about um, the 50s, some of you might remember the story of, of Elizabeth Elliot and Jim Elliot and all the story of the Aka Indians and here are these 
these missionaries that were in South America, and they heard of this tribe that was a remote tribe that seemingly no one kind of could connect with, and they were a murderous tribe. They would kill people. They would slaughter people. They began to actually have a little connection with this. They had this airplane, and they could fly over, and they had a way of going around in a circle in such a way to kind of keep this, and they could kind of lower some stuff down in this little plane. It was crazy because they could kind of keep it in one spot as they would do this. It was just kind of a neat maneuver. And, um, and as they begin to kind of give out gifts to this tribe, at some point they end up landing and even being able to have a communication connection with this tribe. And they were so long to, to witness to them, even to the point where they said this, if something ever happens, we, we, they had the ability to defend themselves. But they said, we won't. And at some point, as they're connecting with this tribe, these men that were there, all of a sudden, all of a sudden get speared. I mean, they, they get killed. They get martyred. Actually, it, it kind of was a shocker around the world, and everyone heard about these missionaries that got, they got slaughtered by this tribe. And what was amazing, even more amazing, was many of you know the story. Elizabeth Elliot moves in with her child into the tribe because she felt protected because of the nature of her being a woman, how they would protect maybe women that wouldn't do the same. And yet she lived among the people that killed her own husband. And she began to witness to them, and so many of these people turned to Christ. They, they came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. You think about, I think about a Wednesday night in Charleston, South Carolina, a number of years ago, a night like this, and, and some kid messed up and racist, and what happens? He sits among this prayer meeting and waits for the right time, and then he begins to open fire and kill the pastor and kill people within the church, and he seems to flee, and they catch him, and yet then eventually as they stand before this pre-trial, they're, 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 you, you, I know they wouldn't replay this, but they were showing members of the church and people who who their family members were killed and were literally there, they're, they're, they're coming to a mic and they're saying to the kid, you need to repent, you need Christ. You killed my mom or you killed my pastor. But Jesus can forgive you and will forgive you. We forgive you. Turn to Christ. You're just thinking that's, that's just not normal. That's divine and one of the great um, divine characteristics of God is He's forgiving. But He's forgiving when a heart repents. So you begin to consider this. I, I wonder, do you flavor the sinful world around you with good taste? That's number one. But number two, when you look at salt, you see a little bit of a bigger context here. And I would say number two is this. The true believers who follow Christ are actually agents of preservation in a sinful world. Now, when you think about agents of preservation, back then, sure enough, they would use salt on things to preserve things longer. Now, as you think about, could you imagine a world without any preservation? I mean, we are blessed in our culture because we have something called refrigeration. (laughs) What if we didn't have refrigeration? Or what if some of you, you know, it's the summertime. Does it ever get hot here in the summer? And let's just say, you know, you go for like a week's vacation. And so, you know, everything seems to be good. But when you leave, you didn't realize that you lost power. Your house lost power. Actually, your fridge, everything's lost power. And for a week, it's gone. And then you come back and you don't notice. And you open up the door of your house and you're like, whoa, like the, it's, it's so hot in here. 
But what happened? And then you go over to the fridge and maybe open up the fridge and you're like, oh, ew, you know, the stench and oh, gross. And you maybe have in the garage like a, like a deep freezer of some sort. And you're like, whoa, it looks like there's blood in here. Was there murder? You know, or something in here. And then you realize that that freezer had gone out or whatever. You open it up and the neighbors are calling 911. There's someone dead in the community. You know what I mean? Just a stench of all the spoiled meats and things like that. If there's no sense of preservation, you know, if you kill the animal, well, you better eat it fast. I mean, you think about your milk, well, you better drink it. And yet you live in a culture with not the same kind of preservation as we have. And so they would often use salt on certain things to preserve things. And in many ways, you could say, here's a greater context here. And you could say it this way. The greatest agent of preservation is Christ. He's the greatest example of this. He's the greatest agent of this. Because here he is, it's like without Christ in a culture, that culture's in serious trouble. So back up a little bit to see the context. Go to chapter 13 and look at verse 1. In chapter 13, verse 1, we see this. And there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So these people had, had died in a sense. Pilate mingles their blood with the sacrifices. Look, look at verse 2. And he answered them. He said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I mean, is that why that happened? And Jesus knows the answer. Here's what he says in verse 3. No, I tell you. That's not why. But unless you repent... You will all likewise perish. Repent or perish? Go even further. Look at the next verse. Verse 4. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So a tower in the culture falls and kills 18 people. That was pretty significant. And then he says this. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? Is that why that happened to them? And he tells them the answer. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Actually, when you consider a culture and devastation and things that happen and people die, that should remind you we're all going to die. That should be a great reminder to, 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 to realize if you don't repent, you will perish. You will spend an eternity separated from God because you've sinned against this holy God. You need repentance and faith. I've even had some people tell me this. They say, Jeremy, actually I have people upset with me. Jeremy, stop preaching repentance. Well, I kind of want to preach the same message Jesus preached. Repent and believe the gospel. I kind of want to preach the same message the apostles preached, which was repentance and faith. Remember, even the Lord is not slow concerning His promises. Some people count slowness, but He's, he's long-suffering, isn't He? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. What are you talking about? Some have even looked at me and said, well, you know, repentance is not a work. And I go, I know it's not a work. I've often, that's what I say all the time. It's not a work that you do. God actually in the scriptures tells you he granted them the gift of repentance. And so what is that though? It is this, it's this heart that begins to be in tune with God. God starts stirring you and you go, I don't want my sin. I need to be rescued. You start seeing the guilt. You feel the weight and the sin. And you go, I don't want it. I, I'm turning from my sin to the one who can rescue me, to the Messiah. It's like the idea of people who are really, really sick. Then you turn to the physician. But interestingly enough, sometimes it takes us men where we get really, really sick before we finally go, you know? We're a little stubborn. Um, 
But when you're really, really sick, you long for help. That's the same picture that Jesus even gave when it came to repentance. Now watch this. Look at verse 22 of the same chapter. He went on this way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will, will those who are saved be few? And actually he says this. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying you better put forth every effort to make sure that you don't miss out on true salvation. Strive to enter through that narrow door. It's a narrow way. Remember, Jesus even made it clear. He said actually that broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go that way. And narrow is the way to life, and very few find it. There is a broad way, and there's a narrow way, and that narrow way is through Christ alone. Actually, it's amazing because remember what Jesus even said, which is so shocker. He did say this. He said, I, speaking of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Oh, okay, okay. That, <laughs> that's pretty, like, narrow, Jeremy, you know? Because our culture says it doesn't really matter. You could be a Christian over here, a Buddhist over here, a Hindu over here. We're all climbing the same mountain. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, he is the way. He's the Messiah. Actually, you begin to read that. And, and here's what I like. Do you guys know that name, C.S. Lewis? famous author of the past, and who actually was very religious at one point in time, but then came to know Christ. He even has some of his writing is actually before conversion and then after. But it's interesting because he did say this after he came to Christ. He said, when it comes to Christ, if he is not who he says he is, if he's a lunatic, a crazy man, don't follow a crazy man. If he is a liar, hey, everybody, I'm Messiah. Don't follow a liar. But if he is who he says he is as Lord, you should humble yourself to that King of kings and Lord of lords. Repent and believe the gospel. And that's the reality. You begin to look at this passage. Jesus is, keeps calling people to repent, to turn to him. And that's kind. He doesn't have to do that. He could let you die in your sin and you would deserve it. I would deserve it. But in his kindness, he shows us the way. Go further. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. Remember the religious crowd they hate Jesus, don't they? Watch them. In verse 1 of chapter 14, then one Sabbath when he went to dine in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. What will he do? And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. What's that? It's a, the idea of an excess fluid. It would be like a cancerous style of tumor. So this is significant, verse 3, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. You can imagine them as they always try to argue with Jesus. He always makes them look so bad. Like they can never get one up on him. I mean, well, he did is creator God in human flesh, and so it's kind of hard to trick the one who made your brain. <laughs> but they keep trying and at this point, he's asked them that serious question in front of people, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they, they don't say anything. Like, well, like that's a good answer. Now you look even dumber. Can you not talk? I asked you a question, you know what I mean? But they don't answer, okay? So you go further, they remain silent, and he took him 
and he healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox, has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? I mean, you'll rescue an animal. You won't rescue a person. What's wrong with you people? That's the idea. Their ethics were so upside down. And does that sound familiar in a culture like ours? I mean, if he caught last night's speech at all, if you didn't, uh, amen, you know. (laughs) If you did, you kind of had to kind of wade yourself through it. Like, what? what? You're not sure what he's even saying. I don't know if he knows sometimes, too. Interesting as though he's speaking near the end, it's a little bit like it comes down to this whole thing where it's like, and you know, and we're going to give, we want to restore because we, we want healthcare to be so great. And we want to, rest- basically, we want to restore abortion. We want healthcare so great, we want to kill more. What? A number of years ago, uh, in the summer, remember that guy who was a hunter and he was like in Africa somewhere and he killed, I think, Leo the lion or something like that? And he went into hiding for his life. It was the same summer uh, that people were so upset that he did something like that. But it was the same summer where the Planned Parenthood videos came out and you had all these little body parts of these, li- these little infants and it's like they're harvesting body parts. And you're going, where's the uproar there? And it's like, you just go, what, what is wrong with our culture? It's, it's, and this is the idea here. It's like, you help an animal. What about a person who's made in the image of God, who God gives life? So you look at this. It's, it's not up to us in that sense. And, so, and they could not reply to these things. So, so now he told a parable to those who were invited. At this feast, he kind of says, hey, listen, you guys, you know, you always want to sit in places of honor and you're trying to get the best seats and you're trying to throw a party. And then what will happen is then your neighbor will throw a party and put you in really nice seats, you know, in the sense, too, the idea is that you'd be seen and, and, and actually be promoted in a sense and have honor. And they kept looking for that, the approval of men. That was all, they were all about that. And he says, he actually is trying to help them to see this. He says in verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying, listen to this crowd, to this religious crowd. Humble yourselves. If you don't humble yourselves, you won't make it to eternity. You won't make it to heaven. As you begin to go even further, he even talks about this this banquet. And he even says this, listen, if you're going to throw a banquet, you should, don't go invite necessarily your rich neighbors. You should go and invite the people who can't pay you back, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you'll be blessed because you can, they cannot repay you. And you'll be repaid in the resurrection of the just. It's like he's saying, don't you get it? That's, that, that's the difference here. And they hear resurrection of the just, and they're feeling all convicted because he keeps kind of slaying them, you know, a little bit with his, and they're like, ah. And so you have some guy who kind of seems to see resurrection of the just, you know, we're feeling all guilty. And then it's like verse 15. Then one of those who reclined at the table with him, you know, heard these things. He said to him, well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's almost like the guy's like, we feel all bad. Hey, let's make a toast. We're all going to go to that heavenly kingdom. Jesus draws them even more into a story as he goes into this story and he gets to the point where the end of the story, verse 24, what does he say? He says, for I tell you, speaking to those who are listening, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet, my supper. You think you're headed there. You're not going to make it. 
if you don't humble yourself in genuine repentance and faith. You have the whole perfect, I mean, beautiful, amazing message of verses 25 to 35, and then you hit chapter 15, and you watch Jesus even more. Look at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Again, if he's religious, he should be at my house. Look, why is he with those people? He eats, and he's a friend of sinners. And again, I think all those who've been born again know our own selves to be sinners, to go, praise God that he's a friend of sinners. But the religious crowd can't handle this. Actually, so he told them his, this parable, verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Now look at verse 7. That's the key. He says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Are you catching Jesus' sarcasm? Because I would ask this question to you. Who are the 99 righteous people that don't need repentance? There's no such thing. In other words, it's like if, 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 if we're not righteous, we need Him. That's the whole point. And so there's joy in heaven over one, but all the 99 that don't think they need repentance, there's no joy for them. There, there's, no, there's no rescuing of them. And so you see Jesus even further. You, you, you see him in verse 8, the, speaking of the woman now, having ten silver coins, and she loses one of the coins. And she, what does she do? She, she, she does, lights this candle. She sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, what does she do? She calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Now again, a very, very, very poor woman probably sweeping a dirt floor of a hut. And the idea is she, finds that, she finally finds that little coin And she's so happy. Rejoice with me, she says. But notice verse 10. Here's the whole idea. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy in the presence of God. It's like the angelic presence. There's joy with the angels in heaven over a sinner who repents. And I would look at you and simply ask this question. Here it is. Ready? What makes you happy? Uh, my truck. <laughs> Golfing. <laughs> the beach. <laughs> what really makes you happy? Because the truth is, if you're in Christ, the same thing that makes heaven and the angels in heaven rejoice and happy and God happy should be the same thing that makes us really happy. When sinners repent. In one sense, you could read chapter 15 and say, what's the theme of chapter 15? I think it's simply this. It's what makes heaven and God happy. And then you have this story, the prodigal son. Watch it. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to this father, Father, give me the share of portion that is coming to me. Do you realize what he just said? In their culture, you did not get your inheritance until dad died. What is the kid saying? He's, saying? he's literally saying this. Hey, dad, 
drop dead. I want my money now. Now, that moment, everyone who's hearing this, even the Pharisees hearing the story that he's saying, everyone's going, I can't be- cannot believe this. And actually, culturally, what would you do with that kid at that moment? Grab the kid, take him out into the streets, and stone him to death. That's what you would do culturally. But it says this, and he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. He's just living in his sin. He's living his own way, going his own way. And he had spent, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. A Jewish boy feeding pigs? He has no food? And he was longing to be fed with the pods. What's the pods? These are carob pods. That it's, the, it's the pig food. He just wished to have that, that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. He is destitute. But notice verse 17, and you're watching genuine repentance happen. But when he came to himself, he's coming to an end of himself. He came to himself. He said, wait a second. He's, this is what he's thinking. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, bread, and I perish here with hunger? Here's what I'm going to do. I will arise, I'll go to my father, I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Are you seeing genuine repentance? He's not just saying, Dad, sorry, kind of did wrong. He's saying, I'm going to run to my father, and I'm going to say, Dear God, first of all, I sinned against you. And, dear, and Dad, I sinned against you. He sinned against heaven. And before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is what he's thinking. So then he arose and he, he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, wait a second. How is his father going to see him? Because his father's watching for him. You see the very love of the father. And he's longing to see that son come. And here he is. He sees him at a distance. And so what does his father do? He not only sees him, but he felt compassion and ran and embraced him. Actually, the nature of him even running grammatically or within the words here, it just, it's like this is a, a significant running where he's like his legs would be showing. It would be, he literally is shaming himself as this older man to this kid who deserves to die in a sense. But he knows this if he doesn't get to that kid and those people recognize who that is, they'll kill him. And so you have a father who's shaming himself to rescue his son. And then he ran, he embraced him, he kissed him. He, you just see him just hugging and kissing. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, he said, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and, and shoes on his feet. It, seemingly he didn't have any shoes. And, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. A big party's happening. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Whoa, there's a party going on. What's happening? And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And he said to him, well, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf. And because he received him back safe and sound, and the brother said, amen. I've been praying for him for so long. This is an amazing answer to prayer. I can't wait to party. That's amazing. No, that's not what he said. Notice verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. I will, I will not go in. And his father, now watch this. And his father came out and entreated him. Do you know who these, these, these boys represent? I mean, the, the one who just squanders his livelihood and just does, he just shows himself to be just the sinner. I mean, he's just the, 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 the one who just is clearly a rebel. And the other one who stays home, who has no heartbeat of the father, who does he represent in this story? It's the Pharisees. It's the religious lost crowd Ouch. But can I also tell you this? Watch what the father did to even the religious lost crowd. You would think you would kind of get so angry with them, but there's an element. What does he do? The father, he came out and entreated him. There's an element you see even the love of God towards a religious hypocrite if he would just repent and believe the gospel. He's so kind, isn't he? I mean, go further. But it's like you see this, he goes out and treats him, but he answered his father and he said, look, these many years, you can hear him, you know, he's like a big baby. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Okay, you liar. Never ever. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Where's my party? But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, I mean, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you were always with me and, and all that is mine is yours. I mean, now, don't look too far into this. I mean, you don't want to read too far into this, but in the re- general, general part of the story, the idea is this. What are you crying about? I've, I've, I've already given you your inheritance. What, what are you worried about? This is so silly. He said, it is fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Are you, are you catching this? This here is like you're watching Jesus as the greatest agent of preservation, calling all people to turn to him in genuine repentance and faith. And he constantly do this, does this. And can I tell you this? Because Jesus is calling, guess what we as believers are supposed to do? We're supposed to call people to Jesus. We go out and we seek to go to the highways and hedges and compel them to come. We just seek to tell them and, and plead with them. We can't make them be saved. But if you're here tonight without Christ, I would once again look at you and say this. Jesus clearly loves you. He's demonstrated the love of his, with his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you would repent and trust in Christ, you can be saved. But if you do reject his love, you will in the end, you'll receive his wrath. You'll receive his wrath. He's a holy, just judge. He's kind to offer us salvation. What will you do with Christ? Jesus, the greatest agent of preservation. Now, as we conclude the message, because some of you are like, eh, Jeremy. Okay, here we go. Ready? 
Um, look at chapter 14, and let's finish it off. Verse 34. Salt is good, he says. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? He goes on to say it's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's like thrown away. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a pro- there is a problem here. Because genuine salt will never lose its savor. Did you know that? So then, what does he mean by this? Well, actually, there is something nearby. What they would do is they would get, gather salt sometimes from the Dead Sea, an improper mixture. They would actually have something what would be called gypsum. Gypsum was like a phony salt. Over time, gypsum would lose its flavor, its savorness of it, and the idea would show itself to be phony and inauthentic, and it was of no use. It was phony. So what would they do with it? They, well, you wouldn't put it on the soil. It would ruin the soil or the manure pile. You would ru- it would ruin that. And so would you, you just throw it out to the pass and let them trample underfoot. I mean, it's, it's useless. You could say true salt is always pure. Or maybe we'd even add a third point to say instead of, you know, the idea of preservation and even, even when it comes to, to, to the idea of flavor, you could say true salt. Actually, true believers who follow Christ, they seek purity because... Just as he is pure, there's the element of salt, real salt is pure. But I think really what you're seeing here is this. I think Jesus is simply teaching this. True salt is useful. True salt is useful. While bad or phony salt is useless. A casual disciple is a person who is of no use to Jesus. He doesn't want the phony He's calling people to be the real deal. He doesn't want part of you. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He wants all of you. And actually, when we finally come to the end of ourselves and we just, we humble ourselves in genuine repentance and faith and submission, what happens? It's like the, the joy of the Lord, it just, he comes in. It's, it's like <laughs> your life changes. You, you have new life. The Spirit, actually, according to Scripture, the Spirit of God comes and lives in you. At the moment of conversion, you're possessed by His Holy Spirit. Not by an evil spirit, not by some kind of demon. No, this is the Spirit of God Almighty. Are you kidding me? And it changes everything. The Word of God starts to come alive if you're a true believer because before you were saved, the natural person who's not saved, they don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They can't even know them, Scripture says, because they're spiritually discerned. And if you don't have the Spirit, it's like a blank book. And that's where some of you are. It's like a blank book because you're not in Christ. When you get saved, it changes everything. Genuine repentance changes everything. And a heart that humbly walks with the Lord is being used of God. And so you look at this and he comes to the end of that message and he simply says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The idea is if if you hear this, I'm talking to you. And I will say this, not everyone in the congregation hears and sometimes I even like to kind of make these jokes because this is true. Do you realize that we up here behind this thing here, we can see you? <laughs> did, you did you know that? Because some people don't realize that. And it really freaks them out if I kind of go like this and walk down here. Because they're all of a sudden they're like, oh, there, he's really, he's for real. Like he's like he's there or something, you know. 
And I, and I think about this because not everybody in the congregation hears. I, we've been in congregations before. I'm sitting there, you know, with my wife, and I all of a sudden hear, click, 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 click. And here's a, a lady clipping her nails on the floor. <laughs> People knitting. <laughs> Jesus is talking to you and you're, you're knitting? Now, one lady pushed back one time. She said, Jeremy, you know, you're saying that, but you know, there's people that might be on the spectrum. And sometimes I said, oh, yeah, I, I get that. But my, my pushback to you will simply be this. When you stand before God and give an account of your life, I promise you, you will not be knitting. <laughs> not everyone hears. I've been in services, and one guy, as I finished, this wasn't here, you know, like at one point I'm hearing snoring, you know, that happens, you know, or to, you know a little girl fell asleep over there, you know, in the song. And I, five minutes into a message, and I was like, you know, you know, you know, like a real ad, to the point it was so loud that it's like it woke the person up, and then they're like, ooh, <laughs> trying to cover themselves. Over. Now, that wasn't here, you know. But I remember then their teens were in the room too and they're all like dying laughing. I keep looking at the teens, I keep laughing too, but I'm not, I don't want to look over to see who did it, you know. Um, so sure, and who knows what the work schedule was like or whatever, okay. Um, but one guy told me in the lobby at one point, not, again, not here, but he said something like this. He said, Jeremy, if you can't say what you're going to say in 30 minutes, you need to sit down and be quiet. And I laughed. I went, <laughs> oh, you're serious. And he goes, oh yeah. And what's amazing about that is this is the reason why I thought it was a joke was there were two grown men in front of him who are in, with tears in their eyes talking about what God had been doing in their life. And they, they're telling me, and then another guy tells me, and then this guy kind of says this. And so it just kind of threw me by the loop. I just thought he was joking. I went, oh, you're serious? He goes, yeah, I'm serious. If you can't say what you're going to say in 30 minutes, you just sit down and be quiet. And I'm like, well, I said, you know, I really feel bad for American Christianity. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, it's interesting because in a Christian, you know, we can't only handle 20 or 30 minutes, but then you go to another culture and, and, and you finish in an hour and they're going, what are you stopping for? Keep going. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, right. Which cultures? You know, I'm like, okay, well, let me tell you. And I start naming all the places we've been. And so and this is what I hear. You know. And then I'm like, here's my next question. I said, do you, sir, do you watch football? <laughs> <laughs> you go to the stadium. If they're not done in 30 minutes. I'm out of here. I don't care what I pay for these seats. I'm out of here. No, if it goes into overtime three hours later, you're like, <laughs> But if the preacher goes into overtime like Sunday morning, you're like, preacher. I'm going to die. Um, and again, would you say that in your college course? Hey, professor, if you can't say what you're going to say in 30 minutes, sit down and be quiet. <laughs> Because not everybody has ears to hear. Have you ever been sitting in a service, though, and it's like, God's talking to you? It's almost like that arrow shot at random, but it finds you. And all of a sudden, you're like, ah, like he, he's actually talking to me. Like he, You have the connection. It's like it's connecting to you. And, and here's Jesus. If you get it, if you hear what I'm saying to you, I'm talking to you. It's like an invitation within the culture. I mean, listen, respond to this message. If God's dealing with you, respond to it because he's talking to you. And as a kid, for me, I was sitting in a service. Uh, I had asked a lot of questions about the gospel. I saw my dad's life transform. And, uh, but I kind of thought I was a Christian too. And then one evening at our church, 
this guy, this evangelist, was preaching the gospel, and as he's preaching the gospel, I'm understanding it. I'm understanding my sin, and I got in trouble all the time. And not just that, he talked about the wages of sin being death, and I'm thinking, I'm in big trouble. I need Jesus to save me. He begins to talk about what Christ did, his death, burial, resurrection, his life. I mean, it just... I, at that point, I knew I needed Christ alone, and I sit beside my dad. The guy gives an invitation, and I, I actually tug on my dad's sleeve. I kind of start pulling it, and my dad looked at me and goes, what are you doing? Because I always messed around. He was thinking I'm messing around, and I said, Dad, I'm not messing around. I, I need Jesus to save me. And my dad, he, he took his Bible. We went to a quiet place in the church, and he just opened up his Bible and began to show me what it meant to repent and to trust in Christ. And as a kid, I, as much as I knew, I said, I don't want my sin, I want Christ. And he saved me. I think of later at 17 where God says, stirred my heart in a camp and I'm just, I had been certain at, at a time of just serious rebellion where I'm running from God. I got to the point where I just said, I surrender, I surrender all. I just, and it was like, I don't, I don't know if anyone else responded that night, but I know God was speaking to me. And, and, and the truth is when God's speaking to you, you need to respond. And so I, I call you tonight, if, if, if he's speaking to you, He's calling you to be authentic salt, to be useful to people who will make an impact. He doesn't want you to be salt in a salt shaker. He wants you to go out in this world and be salt in this world, okay? So in one sense, if you really grasp the message tonight as true believers, you leave here, and in one sense, hey, get out of here and let's go salt on. Let's go make an impact by His grace because He makes an impact in us. May God help us do that. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You for Your Word that is so good. Or I want to thank you for my friends here who have labored with me to listen. And I pray, God, that there would be some in here that truly have ears to hear. Lord, there have been some all week long that have raised their hands acknowledging their, their need for salvation and they have not been born again yet. And I ask, God, that you would continue to work that tonight would be the greatest night for them. I pray for those maybe who are here tonight, maybe visiting. Maybe they've never been born again or maybe a church member who's been coming who's never truly been born again. I pray that tonight there would be genuine conversion of true repentance and faith in the Messiah, in Christ alone. God, only you can do that work of amazing grace, but we must respond to that. I ask God that you would, you would work in hearts. And then for those who are in Christ, Lord, would you please stir our hearts. Or there are some in this room as you're dealing with us, the idea of flavoring a sinful world with good taste. Lord, so often instead of flavoring Christ, we flavor self and sin. God, please, we ask that you would stir our hearts, that we would confess and forsake sin, that we'd walk with you, that we'd be people who would seek to evangelize the lost, that we'd be an agent of preservation in this sinful world. And Lord, knowing that the longer you wait and the longer you withhold your judgment, the more we'll be saved. And so, God, you are so kind in that. Lord, use us in the process, please. How will they hear without a preacher? So, God, we pray tonight in all these things that you would get glory, and that you would receive that glory because you are worthy of all of our praise. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I'm going to ask a simple question tonight is this. Have you been born again? Has there been a time in your life where you have truly and genuinely been saved? where you've understood your sinful condition. You knew that you couldn't rescue yourself. And so what did you do? You repented. You turned from your sin to the only one who could rescue you, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, His resurrection 
He, he conquered sin, death, and hell. And you said, Jeremy, there's been a time in my life where I've repented and trusted in Christ. I have, by His grace and through His Word, been born again. If you have been saved, could you, as a testimony, lift your hand up and just kind of hold it up? Jeremy, I have been saved. There's been a time where that's happened to me. Amen. A number of you here. And you can put your hands down. But not everyone raised their hand to that. Maybe you're here tonight and you just say, Jeremy, I have not been saved yet. And it does concern me. Will you pray for me about this? I, I really have a concern for my own soul and truly being rescued by Christ. Pray for me, Jeremy. And you'd slip your hand up and hold it up. Jeremy, pray for me. Okay, I appreciate that. Who else? Jeremy, pray for me. Appreciate that. Yeah. Who else? Jeremy, pray for me. I, I'm here tonight. I don't think I've been saved yet. And this does concern me. And this is more important than anything else. Okay, and you can put your hands down. I would want to pray for you. Father, please stir the hearts. And Lord, bring people to genuine faith. With their heads bowed and their eyes still closed, I wonder how many believers would say, Jeremy, God is speaking to me tonight about making an impact constantly. And I realize I can't do that apart from Christ working in me, having a daily walk with Him, removing sin, loving Him supremely, surrendering to Him, considering the cost. Jeremy, by God's grace, I, I really do long to see God work in me and work through me and make an impact. Jeremy, pray for me about that. And you just slip your hand up as a, as a believer. Pray for me. Yeah. I think that's our heart's desire, isn't it? Tonight, I want to give you this opportunity to respond to him. My wife is at the piano and want to give you an opportunity to, to be able to talk to someone even tonight. If you want to talk to somebody, we have trained counselors and people who could help you. And what I would invite you to do is actually, if God is speaking to you even now with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, an easy opportunity to respond. If you're not sure that you're on your way to heaven, I'm not sure that you've been born again, you have a real relationship with Christ, we would love to help you. And I would invite you to leave your seat quietly and just make your way to the lobby. And in the lobby, we will have some people there to help you. We will point you to Christ. What, what, what a great night it would be that you would repent tonight. There's a couple of you in this room that have acknowledged this, some, some consistently. What are you waiting for? What's holding you back from coming completely to Christ? We call you to Christ. We can't make you, but we call you to Christ. 